Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, July 13th is the... I don't know. Are we in the dead center of summer? Yes. I think... I think... I, I qualify it as that. Do we? Because... Uh, it's been a hell of a year, 2020. Nothing has gone as planned, I don't think, uh, when we started the year. And uh, it's it's rocking and rolling in the coastal world as well, because, you know, if nothing else, beach tourism, what people are doing in the summer, has been dramatically different. And the situation doesn't look too sparkly going into the rest of the summer. No, needless to say, 2020 has been a weird year for beaches and coasts and shorelines and tourism economies and, you know, goodness, I think it's even been a weird year for, you know, the wind economy and the, uh, you know, the offshore energy economy, the, the drillers out there having to evacuate for COVID and stuff. I mean, it has yeah. been a... You know, overshadowed and all this was the oil collapse that happened kind of in the middle of COVID. It has been a totally bizarre year. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, on today's show, Peter and I are going to shoot the breeze a little bit with you. Uh, we're in the middle of summer. There's been a lot of really interesting stuff going on well. on Coastal News today. Uh, and we've had some amazing podcasts on the podcast network, and we have some really exciting stuff coming up, some announcements to make. So we're going to kind of dedicate this show to that and talking about whatever else is on our minds, which yeah, I'm sure summer show. Yeah, I'm sure some stuff will pop in there. Uh, but before we get to it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. You mentioned uh, what's happening in offshore energy. I think that, why not? Because uh, when you think about the COVID thing, everybody thinks, of course, about like people getting sick, it's rolling across the country, how many cases, how many people are dead, that kind of stuff. It's the important stuff, but the uh, the change in 
the oil and gas industry, the price of oil has really put a kibosh on a lot of offshore expensive offshore energy development, oil and gas. And that matters a lot to our listeners because the revenues that are derived from offshore oil and gas drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, distributed under GOMISA, the Gulf of Energy, uh, Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, pump millions and millions of dollars into coastal communities around the Gulf of Mexico. So COVID, you know, it resonates on a lot of levels. Oh, tremendously. Let's just talk about that because I think the revenue side yeah. is one of the things that I think we're starting to understand more and more just how deep the penetration of COVID will go. Yeah. You know, think about it. If you're, if you're a beach project, look at a beach project like the one we worked on in Minnesota key. Yeah. That's pulling in funds from the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe there were any uh, federal contributions on that one. Not on that one, but, but there were, uh, there was tourism uh, fund contributions yeah. and kind of general fund contributions. In fact, I mean, needless to say, that tourism fund has taken a dip. Yeah. Um, and in order to make that project, which is has been built, but in order to make it a reality, new taxes had to be created. And Lord knows that uh, people will be feeling it. And the political reality of maintaining those commitments, yeah. maintaining, especially if you have a new tax, a new thing, will these be rolled back? Will there be kind of a yeah. a step backwards? And it just highlights how important that federal <clears throat> contribution is. Uh, because if you're a local government and you're a beach community, and let's be real, ladies and gentlemen, most beach communities in on the American shoreline are increasingly reliant on tourism as a portion of their economy. Yeah. I mean, even even yeah. the old fishing towns are increasingly reliant yeah. on tourism and that has been disrupted yeah. uh, and those that that's going to take a big hit out of the the tax base i have to i have to imagine 100 percent. i mean you think about sales tax revenues that come with visitorship alcohol uh taxes that big time in florida on the beaches around the state and then the occupancy tax, the hotel occupancy tax, the accommodation tax, it's called in North Carolina. But uh, beach communities around the United States, I think, are really suffering uh, from a revenue standpoint. And I don't, I mean, here's the thing, Tyler. I don't think it's looking like it's going to get a, a lot better here in the near term. Um, Florida is, this is July 13th now. Uh, is at the top of the heap in new cases all around the state. Uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, which was very quiet in May, uh, April, May, on COVID, very few cases, is now rocking and rolling with COVID cases. The hospitals are getting full. And South Padre Island down in the Rio Grande Valley. And these are areas where, you know, lots of visitors coming and going. And these beach towns are susceptible to pretty significant spreads of this virus. I think we're starting to see it. And all of that is going to come down ultimately into the revenues of the towns and their capacity to uh, do good things on the coast of America. Um, you mentioned Minnesota Key, the beach restoration project that uh, Michael Poff and, uh, designed for coastal planning uh, 
Right. Coastal engineering Coast, consultants. Coastal engineering consultants. Michael Poff, fantastic guy. Did a really good job. They just passed the tax, by the way, last week for Sarasota County. Uh, how about that? that it, this is the neighboring uh, county to the north. That's right. Uh, it was Charlotte County, and and uh, uh, had we had put together the funding strategy for Charlotte County. The project was executed. The adjoining ca- county to North Sarasota did not hire us, Tyler, and we did we had kicked their ass, kicked ass on that one too, because we put together a great funding strategy for Charlotte. Yeah, we would have cooked them up something good. We'd have come up with something good, and they, um, <clears throat> of course, we quit doing that so we could do Coastal News Today and ASPN, but. But we we they did they did which is totally fine with me. I think it was a good step. You and I agree. Um, but uh, Sarasota did did adopt it. Yeah, I mean, look, we're talking about taxes. We're talking about revenue. We're talking about the economic uh, reality of beach towns, and beach communities increasingly are tourism oriented. But I want to say something else. The uh, tourism dollars that are coming in in the form of a tourism tax are increasingly relied upon to uh, politically raise revenues because you're putting it on the visitors to the town not onto the actual voters the the city council it's quite easy actually if you're a city councilman and you have a little budget gap to say you know what i know how i can come up with this money i'm gonna i'm gonna tax the visitors who come here and use our beach and come to our hotels and use the sidewalks and the yeah. roads and the yeah. parking and all yeah. that stuff. It's just much easier. It is. To rate. And so in beach towns have the the fortune, the good fortune of having people like that come to them so you can tax them. I mean, yeah. it, it. And uh, yeah, I think that I really uh, I think we're kind of heading for a reckoning here. I mean, yeah, it there is a. A liability when an economy is so heavily monocultured into one it's a good way to zone you know what i mean yeah no it's a good way to it's put not it. a good like if you were to imagine a good healthy environment you know take a forest and you've got predators and you've got yeah, rabbits diversity. hopping around eating the grass <laughs> because you you've got exactly biodiversity <laughs> you've got a full slate of yeah there uh you know we were talking to uh when Joe Mancini and uh, the town of Long Beach uh, in New Jersey, I really want to get back to him. He's been on we the, will. the local control pod. A couple we'll times, have him back. But, but I think this is what we're kind of highlighting and calling out for our listeners around the country is uh, uh, we, we know everybody's getting full wall-to-wall coverage on the nature of the pandemic and the people affected. And we don't have to talk a lot about that, but it's obviously the, you know, we're 133,000 deaths. We're three million cases. We're we're rocking and rolling. I think the United States will be the number one COVID country in America before it's all said and done. I think we're best at spreading it. We're best at not handling it, and we're going to be the winners in the lotto of COVID eventually. But I think we're in the lead. But but the, but the ramifications for coastal communities is what we're really talking about. And and local governments out there uh, are not doesn't seem to me going to get a lot of relief in the second half of the year here, um, because I think we're I think we might be getting shut down again. Do you think in Texas we're gonna are they gonna pull the plug on Texas here? I mean, I mean, it's so hard to say at this point where our society is on that. You know, I think that there is a uh, an interest on behalf of 
uh, you know, myself, I'll just I'll speak for myself. You know, I think it would actually have been more efficient if we had just shut down like we were from March till the end of April. Those six weeks, I thought we were really kind of starting to hit our stride. It was rough at times. But after six weeks, I was starting to personally. Yeah, I was starting to feel pretty good and I was getting pretty good at Zoom's. Right. And FaceTiming and we were recording separately. Yeah. Completely uh, starting to get the hang of it. And I was like, you know what? We can do that. And I was also noticing that school teachers were starting to think about, okay, I can actually run my class like this. And right. And then for, I think, kind of obvious reasons, we reopened. And I think that that was way premature. And Clearly. Um, n- not only premature in the sense that like there was going to be a time but it was actually a missed opportunity the the move to to use our vetiver grass guy the move <clears throat> was to uh double down on getting really good at lockdown turns out that a bunch of great american companies and innovation were starting to happen yeah. Restaurants were figuring out, oh, I can do some delivery. And I know a lot of them weren't, and business was still suppressed, but yeah. there, it was the adjust- better than a nothing. The it's better than a zero. Un- the adjustment was underway. I think that's fair to say. And then we, we decided... We were getting better at it. We were getting better. I, think I that's could tell true. we were getting better at it. Uh, and now we've, we've, cl- we've opened it up, and now we are trying to find a way to constrict it yeah. without closing it all the way. It is a weird concept because uh i'm seeing jets flying in pretty much per normal yeah austin airport southwest was flying in uh, coming over to the studio today and i was like man that i haven't seen those coming into land for a while they've been real well i mean during the initial lockdown there weren't any jets flying in and now uh that we've reopened they're kind of back up no doubt that the past couple weeks Things have kind of constricted, but I think that the truth is that the cat is kind of out of the bag. Yeah, can we socially? Can we do it? I think we, here's the way I think it works: is the there's a political angle to this stuff. Uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, he's <clears throat> been pretty adamant about not constraining the life of Texans in response to COVID. You know, came out with the mandatory mask uh, directive. Uh, I don't know how deeply that sunk in. I think a lot of people still. I tell you, just around Austin, uh, it's pretty universal inside and outside to see everybody in a mask now. But uh, I think the reality is a persistent teacher. That's one of my favorite phrases. I think, uh, you know, are we going to have the wherewithal to put this thing back into the can if we need to? Are we going to be able to call people back off the street and out of work? Uh, I think if the numbers are sufficiently high, everybody caves. And I, I didn't think... Abbott was going to be active on the mask issue, um, but he has, and it it because this is real um, and it's personal, and friends of his and families that he knows, and uh, grandmothers and grandfathers of communities of people he knows very well are dying, and you think, gee whiz, maybe I should do something instead of sit around and say, you know, everybody makes their own decision. So I do think the reality is going to come to bear. And I do. There isn't any reason to think the pandemic is peaking right now. I don't. I I agreed. I mean, everything that the scientists say is we're not we're not. This is not a peak moment. This is just kind of like the first wave uh, continued. 
Uh, it would be like if uh, Empire Strikes Back were part of episode four, I guess, would be kind of what that would be like. <laughs> In a way. I don't know all the episodes of Star Wars. If Genevieve, my wife, was here, she would definitely understand exactly anyway, let me, what you let me, said. Anyway, let me, let me move on yeah, from that no. and just say that there's a strong connection to this discussion and what we're observing from our society and uh, climate change and what's going on on the shore and uh, the evolution of thought. And truly, uh, just like with climate change, with COVID, there was a uh, faction that developed of kind of the anti, we could somewhat call it denial. I mean, these yeah. there were people out there, eh, it's just, you know, it's There's just still a sniffle. You're just, and the truth is that it's not. And so, this, and the science backs the truth, so happens to be. So, right. Uh, there's this weird anti-science narrative that exists with COVID that certainly exists on the beach. Uh, and in the discussion of how to manage for the risks of sea level rise yeah, and all of that comparison. stuff, the difference is the time scale and also the loss of life. Right. You know, I mean, that those are two things that are just, if you're a politician, if you're Greg Abbott, and you're going to change, your, you're going to zigzag like that, uh, you've yeah. got to be compelled by, the, I guess, your voters. Well, or you're at some stage i think your conscience comes into play i think the numbers you know you can fiddle around with spin you can certainly talk about a lot of government policy decisions <clears throat> from the perspective of just here's what i believe about it whether it's health care or the right environmental regulatory structure or what the economic stimulus packages should be that's all stuff you can debate and discuss and spin and say this is what i believe and here's why you get to something like a, a virus uh, it's like a it's like a hurricane. It doesn't give a shit what you think or what you believe. These are forces of nature that exist outside of our uh, ability to dictate to. We can affect them, and we can certainly affect how they, the impact that they have on us. Whether we put a lot of development in hurricane zones or we you know, separate a little bit with COVID and, and try to minimize transmission. But the physical nature of these events is is beyond spin. So this is why I'm actually No optimistic. pun intended. Yeah, they're yeah, they're they're beyond they're this is gonna they're because of a hurricane, y'all. <laughs> right. But the other thing and I think that why your the analogy with climate change is a good one is because you said, you know, the the science is it's it's not the flu. But if you, you know, the, the nuance, this is the truth about hurricanes and it's also in climate change. And it's true about COVID. The impact is multidimensional. Um, for people with COVID, and this is, there are people who experience it as the flu. There are people who have encountered it and do not get seriously sick. And then there are those who it will kill and it <clears throat> it's not just elderly. Um I have a really good friend uh, who's from the Beaumont area and was, you know, does not think this, you know, he thinks the best thing to do is to let people figure out the risk themselves and sort it out. But there was a really great article in the paper this week about the band director for one of the high schools in Nederland in the Beaumont area, very well known, super great guy, you know, cascades of students who loved him in his 40s, uh, father of four, I think. 
who died of COVID within 10 days of getting it. <clears throat> and so the, the, the experience of COVID is, is from everything from a mild case, it doesn't really matter, it seems like the flu, to I'm dead very quickly. Climate change is, also has this, there's a lot of negative. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dead bodies, too, in climate. And I mean this in terms of fisheries impact or what we can actually document as detrimental. And then there's going to be people growing grapes and, and, and uh, producing wine in, North, in Northern Europe. That's going to happen because of climate change as well. Yeah. And I just think that makes it kind of hard to react to because it's more than one outcome. There are some, there can be some, you know, I don't know. I just think variety of experience there. I I think that there is a, uh, I think that there's a lot to be learned from looking at COVID as an environmental event. And yeah, just like other environmental events and uh, things that we have to exist with and 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 be a part of we are a part of the same environment that covid is yeah covid by the way this is interesting yeah covid i believe i'm i'm pulling this out of my deep memory so i might i might have this wrong but you know the amount of genetic material in in a covid is about like an email it's like a, a three paragraph email it has broken. The, can you imagine crafting three paragraphs that would take the world down? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no. that's the amount of data. It's not much conveyed in, and it's doing all of this crazy things to your body. Yeah, it's really remarkable. But we are, we are, we coexist, and we coexist on the planet. We coexist. This is not like an unnatural thing. No. It is a natural thing. Of course, it is. And. Uh, climate change is a natural thing. It's it's you could call it physics. You can, but like it's a natural thing. It is. Yeah, we participate in how it propagates. You know, climate change is a participatory. We are connected. We are connected to it because we are part of the environment. We're pumping stuff into the air, so we participate. We're and connected. COVID, COVID is like this. We're thing. all connected. These are natural forces, though. That we. It's pretty mind blowing, bro. It is. I mean, seriously, this thing about the about. I mean, think about this. A virus is not considered to be a living thing. So, and, and I think you and I have talked about this outside the shows, but, um, you know, in December or November, this snippet of genetic material that is encased in a protein coat, it cannot reproduce itself, it can't, doesn't breathe, it has no mobility, it can't walk, right? It's a snippet. And it has none of the attributes of life. That's why it's not considered. It can reproduce, but it has to hijack and take over a living being in order to operate. That's why it's not considered. This is kind of the the scientist guys are like, yeah, but it, it can't self-reproduce. I think there's some, I think, there, isn't there some kind of discussion, deeper discussion about is it life or not? Yeah, it's a, it's a close call. I would, there I are, would, it's very close call. I err on the, I personally... Not not as though I'm a scientist, but if I were to yeah. vote on it, I'd be like, it's a life form. It's it's a life. I mean, it's a. But this. But here's what's amazing about it. This thing starts in a particular location on the planet. Say it was November, December. They'll figure out where the point of origin was. Let's say it's. It turns out to be China is correct, but it crosses the ocean within 30 days. It moves around the world, and it's on its way to working itself into every nook and cranny of America. 
You know, I have friends who say, you know, no, it's my New York is one example. It, when it gets to Montana, there's no subway. There's no people. It's not going to happen. Montana's got the highest rate of infection going right now, as do other rural West Texas, West uh, United States states. So uh, the point I'm making is this thing is stunning. And it, if you can think of, is there anything else you could think of? That would close down every major, every major city on the planet for 30 days and make everybody stop. Is there any force that you can imagine that could do what this virus has done to the planet and to us? I can't think of anything. I think you need to go to the movies. Because <laughs> they've thought of some things. Well, I mean, sure, but that's not that's my point. <laughs> Independence Day, aliens, bro, coming in that changes yeah, the world. They, okay, but I'm talking about actual shit, not alien. No, that's true. Asteroid, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I just watched Independence Day again. It's pretty good. It's it's a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Yeah. Well, the point is that uh, this has absolutely messed the messed the social order up and will continue to do so and what i'm simply suggesting is that as we think about what it means there's a tendency to really focus hyper focus on reopening this or doing this and right. kind of this really but yeah. like look at the big picture here yeah, step folks back. step back. and what step you back. see is that we're struggling to find a way to sustainably exist in our grandest sense of the environment, which in this case is our planet, I think we can say. And uh, that, the lessons and the mistakes we make and the lessons we learn from those mistakes and and hopefully we have some successes, we can, I believe, uh, apply to the other environmental challenges that are around the corner. We will get through this. We will get through COVID. Climate change is around the corner. I really think that we should be I'm personally, this is just me. I'm just paying attention to see right. what, how, Can how we, we respond. What, how do societies, hmm. um, yeah, evolve to manage this kind of thing? I'm yeah. very interested in, in focusing on it. But uh, I came up with a game that I, I want to play with okay, you. Okay, let's do it. Um, and the game yeah. is we're so it's it's July. We're a little over halfway through the year. Thirteenth, yeah, uh, and. I think it would be fun at this point to go through. Now, you have not done any prep on this, ladies and gentlemen. No, no so. preparation whatsoever. <laughs> right. This is a free-flowing podcast. Okay. But on coastofnewstoday.com, go there. You'll notice that across the top, we have listed all of the sectors of the American shoreline. Yeah. The major sectors, more or less. We, we always, we're always debating whether to add, subtract. I, I think we can fit everything right. in it. Uh-huh. I'm going to breeze through these. Okay, go we're ahead. Not gonna, we're not going to linger and an- analyze too heavily. But I want to know what's the biggest piece of news in each one, in your opinion, Damn. thus far. Man, that's a tough one. Um, okay. All right. Are you um, ready for it? Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. We can just start here because the first one's going to be... Well, if we were to go uh, left to right, the first one would be science on the top. <laughs> Biggest science discovery hmm. of the year so far. 2020, weird year for science, but you know, uh, we've, we've had a couple discussions with Kunkel. Well, He's up there working away. Scientists yeah. are still, for the most part, engaged in their research, yeah. and there has been some really fascinating well, stuff. I would say what the things that jump out to me, and I think 
you know these are two of my favorite topics uh, that we haven't really dealt with uh, as much as I want to on Coastal News Today or in ASPN is is the Arctic. The, the last great land rush on the planet, Earth, I think is, is underway. Uh, I kind of look at it as... You know, what is what was it like when the Europeans encountered North America in 1492 and over the next 100 years sort of got set up in, in this wash uh, of, of humanity uh, kind of sped across you know, the North American continent on its way to California, you know, kind of wiping out all that was there. Uh, and I mean that in, in terms of the fact that this, the continent was, was well occupied. Um, but think of this. The melting in the Arctic and the scientists are telling us what's going on up there uh, is going to open up territory that is is complete is not been exploited. Right? Totally. Fishing. The new frontier. The new frontier. Oil and gas. Fisheries. Uh, the Russians have floated. Shipping ways. Shipping. I mean, it's going to. Yeah. yeah. Mineral what? extraction. I mean, all this stuff is going to change dramatically. The Russians have a, have built a nuclear reactor and floated it up to the arctic it's the beginning of the the power stations that they have to have to run communities and lng export terminals through the art i mean you know so i'm really fascinated by what's going on with the science and what do we understand about it and my question is can we can we encounter this unoccupied and really entirely unexploited space any better than we have in the past is it going to be any better than 1500 to 1700 when the north american continent was encountered by the europeans are we going to do any better interesting i I really like that one uh and uh i would but first of all we are cooking up a show uh we haven't we don't i can't tell you when it'll be but soon we are going to do a series of shows on the arctic we're going to do kind of arctic 101 learn about it all this the arctic as a space and in addition we're going to do a whole series on the seafloor yeah it's the um, two areas line. that um if if y'all listen to our titanic show you noticed uh with ola uh ola that Vermer. there was an evolution in the capacity for people to exploit that wreck mm-hmm. uh when ballard discovered it it was you needed to be the u.s navy and NOAA to get to that thing right or the french government yeah the french government um but by the time the mid 90s rolls around they've pulled something up yeah <laughs> a wine decanter and by today they've pulled a lot of things up yeah and they want to go into the hull now so you can see that creep happening and the same things happening on the seafloor at large it's True. not just rex ladies and gentlemen it is the bottom of the sea uh, industry is looking at that with uh, dollar signs in their eyes um, the Arctic is the same thing. Right. And these are two spaces, great frontiers. two great frontiers that are emergent and will absolutely be uh, an important part of the future of the American shoreline, of course, yeah. because yeah. all of this infrastructure that's going to be uh, required yeah. to work this stuff is going to be on the shoreline. Um, but for all of us, I mean, truly, this is this is going to be this is a planetary right. um, uh, frontier that this- is is going to be just affecting this is going to stretch way beyond the american the the boundaries of america yeah uh this is international stuff and it's totally of the frame of like big planetary climate change stuff but it's so important we've got to talk about it yeah i want to uh 
I think we need to educate ourselves and educate our audience a little bit um, about about say the International Seabed Authority, which is a United Nations entity uh, created by the Law of the Sea Convention in the early '70s. The United States is not a party to the Law of the Sea uh, Convention or the International Seabed Authority, but at issue, of course, I think may maybe most of our listeners know this: the strategic minerals on the bottom of the sea. Uh, particularly manganese nodules and polymetallic sulfide crusts and these various mineral deposits associated generally with uh, volcanic deep sea vents, but not, not entirely. But the reason this is so important is these strategic minerals are a critical component of the new economy of renewable energy and solar and wind power and battery storage and electronics and cell phones and computers and the whole, the whole, this is the baseline stuff uh, for the new economy. And we're going to need a lot of it. And 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 the the flip Mm -hmm. side of that is that it's because of those things that we can go get it. I mean, yeah, there's a a financial motivation. Like like you're saying on the Titanic, there's the capacity in the monetary. What I'm saying is that there is a technological capacity to put a robot on the bottom of the ocean Mm -hmm. that will go and mine these things that didn't exist. So if you're thinking, wow, gee, that's so big, it's never gonna happen, it's just too difficult, the expense. right? No, 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 no. It's starting it, to change. It's starting to change. And there are major companies that are investing major money Sovereign in, and nations. in this uh, technology. Well, the cool thing is, right, the international... C- and look, I think Tyler and I were trying to put together this C- series that we're working on on the International Seabed Authority and also on deep sea mineral mining, um, what that might involve. But, um, you know, as crazy as it might sound, we hope to have the... Uh, uh, the secretary of the International Seabed Authority on the podcast at some point. We want to have some of the higher ups in the companies that are designing the equipment that will operate at five to ten thousand, you know, feet depths and mine and somehow get to the surface these minerals. Um, and I want to have on the some of the leading geologists. Uh, we're starting to try to figure out. You know, getting on the show the world's best geologist on deep sea minerals to talk about and explain to us what the hell is it and where is it and how is it decided? You know, how do you decide what to go after? And the environmental community. I mean, I think it's important to get ahead of this a little bit and get conversant in what these deep sea bed minerals are going to present to us. We, it's happening. It's. Uh, I'll, I'll shift to the next topic, yeah, which I'm, okay. I want to do energy yeah, because right. it's been a big year. Yeah. It's been a big freaking decade for, Yeah, uh, I guess we're in the 20s now, but the, the, the teens were a big year for offshore wind. Uh, the 20s are going to be imp- the, the construction and implementation time, yeah. but we have crossed a major... When we had on uh, yeah. Sheldon Whitehouse for Memorial Day, yeah, Senator there was one offshore wind installation... In the whole country, and it was it, it was the Rhode Island uh, Block Island project. Right. That's right. Uh, Virginia has cracked the seal. Yeah, and they are in the process now of constructing their turbines. I believe the first turbines are out and built. Yeah, now. they're starting to. Deploy. This has been happening during COVID. Yeah, they've been building this stuff. Uh, there was some delays. We've been running these stories of yeah. de- you know fits and starts, ladies and gentlemen. It's just like. 
everything else. But yeah, uh, these projects are becoming a reality. It won't be long here before they will be putting kilowatts onto the grid. Yeah. And uh, man, that's, well, I think that's Island, a major development. It, it in, is. For, the, for uh, 2020, first half of the year. Yeah implementation of these projects it's coming to america you know this is uh who's that what was that guy who's saying that neil song? diamond neil diamond is coming to america it's been all over the european shoreline and in the north sea huge huge projects uh but it's coming to america now and the companies that have developed it in europe uh orsted in particular but not uh our critical leader here um which is unfortunate for the United States that we sat on our ass and, and have not responded uh, to this in the technological opportunities and the and the financial opportunities have been sort of left. Oh, we'll get but, there. But we'll, we'll get, get there. there. But don't 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 get too down on I'm, it. Well, I think you know as as Sheldon Whitehouse explained, uh, the technology necessary to build the jackets they're called the the foundations for offshore wind power are not that different from what you need for an oil rig offshore and so the louisiana industry maritime and construction industry is is poised to to jump into the wind power business in america and that's great um but i think that is that is the biggest story um and uh, you know i think because the price of oil is down at around $40 a barrel, uh, it gets a little bit tougher to pursue very, very expensive deep water drilling projects at the moment. And so there is this opportunity for other energy sources offshore uh, to, to attract investors. People need to put their money somewhere. They're going to invest in technology like this. And wind power is a little bit, actually as an investment, a little bit more stable, you know. Saudi, right. Saudi Arabian and Russians can't turn the key and change the price. It's the wind. It's the wind. All right. Moving along. These have got to be quick. Okay. All right. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Let's go to aquaculture. We've done some shows on aquaculture. We have, uh, you know. Something um, we've been focused on. There's a, there, Robert Jones, his new show, Seafoodie Podcast. Uh, he had on the executive director of the organization on Capitol Hill trying to pass the Aqua Act to promote and streamline and make possible. Margaret Henderson. Margaret Henderson. Thank you. Uh, and they're really pushing to, to open up offshore aquaculture for fin fish primarily. Um, but the, the nearshore waters, uh, clams, oysters, that kind of stuff, you know, Thane Tinson and his organization who have challenged the nationwide permit for aquaculture were successful you know we talked to thane and the advocates who were who were fighting to say the environmental regulations governing governing nearshore aquaculture practices primarily shellfish uh this was a nationwide permit under the corps of engineers (coughs) authority clean water act uh was invalid no good wasn't serious didn't do the job and they went to court federal court they won that since we spoke to him and then we've had on the, uh, the, the near drinks producers. with if that was the Friday happy hour we did uh, drinks with aquaculture lawyers. lawyers yeah that was a good show and and these were the lawyers <coughs> that were combating that were in that case correct combating is not the legal term uh, no I, and litigants maybe would be the yeah, right okay. one but uh, yeah. they they duking uh, it out I mean that's they were in doing. it and yeah. they uh, prevailed there so 
Uh, look at that scoop on but ASPN. It was, and but then we had on the shellfish growers and the folks who were involved in the economy of it, and um, there's a whole other side. As and I think as you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. shellfish and certain kinds of aquaculture practices that are the planktonic kind, um, as opposed to fin fish that need a lot of protein meal and cages and things, but. But, man, you think nearshore shellfish is a good protein source. We need more of it in our diet. It's a small business operation opportunity. I mean, there does seem to be in aquaculture this tension that we have not resolved yet, but we're on the path of getting serious about. It's, you know, it's just about figuring out how to do it right. And I think so much of this has to do with de-industrializing our practices to some extent. And just being, and also introducing uh new technologies that can just make it less harmful yeah um and and this is why our our partners at the national working waterfront network yeah who are uh, you know sea grant people so we're combining university scientists and researchers with industry people uh to try to figure out and and nira uh, the national estuary research reserve association yeah. and all of the system yeah. uh, in the country this these are that's a national system designed to connect uh the science with the industries at you know in question yeah and i think that there's you know if you can imagine you know a cornfield just a monocultured acre of corn yeah there's not a lot of environmental benefit there but uh if you were to look at say hey i'm, I'm going to try to grow corn on an acre I'm going to mix it up instead of planting rows i'm gonna, i'm going to have a robot tend my corn <laughs> this is not really? out of question ladies no, and gentlemen no. we will be having i i i guarantee really yes robotic uh, farming I had no question okay there will be robots that will be inspecting that will they can scan plants for pest you know pests and wow. so if, if that's the terrestrial version you know we can absolutely introduce that to some degree uh in the marine environment um the question though is is what does that look like um how far do we go what's the scale and also how do we allow uh small cottage industry folks people who aren't the big 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 players you know i was thrilled to have margaret on margaret's organization which is called stat the mm-hmm. secure america through seafood i believe is what that stands right. for it's a very interesting formulation of their organization to connect aquaculture production to american security you know they know who's who's well, who's food, the president yeah. i mean i i think it's a wasn't you know it, it's a good political decision make making by the organization she's with but I'll tell you, it's all big time hitters. There, you're talking about Cargill. Not all. You're talking about. I mean, they have responsible. Red Lobster. You're talking about major corporations. That's that some are, of it. That's but, some of it. But I think that in general, the the or there are. I mean, look, I'm not a big. I can guarantee our audience that you can show me aquaculture uh, operations and and you know proposals that I personally would think are ridiculously risky, hmm. but. I'm also sympathetic to the notion of uh, figuring out alternative ways to harvest seafood that are 
yeah. uh, not as as harmful. And maybe this is a good opportunity, actually, for we've well, not, separated. Not as dependent on 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 wild stocks, uh, you know. Of Correct. Course. No, there right. is advantage here, and I think it's about being smart and trying to sort it out. I certainly don't know the. I couldn't tell you what the right balance is, but I think. Uh, the cautionary principle. I'm a fan of the cautionary principle in all sorts of uh, new endeavors uh, like this, um, which simply says that, you know, you can look at confined animal feeding operations, CAFOs, they are under the EPA's regulations and under, you know, these are feedlots, of course, for beef, but also for chickens and pigs. And if you look at how those operate on when they get to a certain scale, man you know it's incredibly environmentally intensive and and maybe we as you're saying if the get the scale right you get the smaller operators you spread this around you there's a you know the ocean's a big place and out to the exclusive economic zone the eez for the u.s is out 200 miles there's a lot Mm -hmm. of space here do we really have to like make massive feedlots in the sea i hope not well i don't know what it looks like but i know that like look at the way we did wind those are massive wind uh lots in the sea and uh yeah and there are environmental groups that have questions about that so yeah we need to strike the balance and that's always what it's about and the point of the of the aquaculture content is to just like with the seafloor stuff and with the Arctic stuff, it's to expand our collective vocabulary yeah. so that when an aquaculture facility comes to your town and is pitching a, a proposed plan, yeah. uh, our audience is going to be conversant in the discussion. Yeah. And you'll know what questions to ask. And, and hey, you know, is this a slippery, slimy operation or is this a... Uh, yeah. Is this above board and innovative and bring something good to the table? Now, I'm going to I'm going to we've separated, by the way, aquaculture and fisheries on the website, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So be sure to go to coastalnewstoday.com and check these uh, pages out. Subscribe, you can y'all. subscribe to the Seriously. newsletter, but go to coastalnewstoday.com and click on a sector up there on the top and look at the assortment of news. It's very interesting. We have a fisheries uh, tab. I'm going to take this one, Peter. Go ahead. We, I, I just you... had the pleasure of recording a podcast with Robert Jones, the Seafoodie Podcast. Uh, this has not come out yet. It's going to come out in a few weeks. But can we brag? Let me brag before you go into brag about Robert a little bit here. Go ahead. Robert Jones uh, is one of uh, one of the most uh, innovative thinking guys that I know when it comes to fisheries issues in particular, but uh, marine and coastal policy. Uh, First of all, he's he comes at it authentically. He is he is a hunter fisherman who uh, is, you know, at pro at redfish and bays and estuaries around the United States. He he's incredibly uh, intelligent as a physical in the physical environment that he's that he's talking about, uh, and he's also a damn chef. A, you know, American Culinary Institute chef. Uh, who's working on this sustainable seafood stuff and this new podcast he has on ASPN, which I'm absolutely thrilled to have, is going to be about the harvest and use of seafood. So Robert Jones is, uh, I, you know, I haven't listened to the latest show, but so the, you'd have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I, I engineered yeah. it. So, uh, 
look, this this is a show about he's a chef and it's a show about food and enjoyment and the food supply system. Uh, he had on PJ Stoops, a world renowned chef from uh, Houston. He and his wife came out with an amazing cookbook published by the University of Texas Press. And it's all about cooking with bycatch. Um, but in a bigger way, and what this podcast is about, is about um, reframing our understanding of seafood as a whole. So instead of like targeting, you know, the whole Western philosophy of of, sea, of, of catching food, uh, wild harvest is you go out and you target a species, tuna, swordfish, right. snapper, shrimp whatever it is your whole boat your whole equipment scheme is geared around this well his wife is uh i I believe thai and she draws a lot of influence from her growing up uh time and in thailand and thailand where the relationship with wild caught seafood is entirely different i did not realize this okay i have to say i learned something new and and it's that so much of the so you know you can imagine a, mer- a modern american fishing boat right which is like pretty specific purpose built oh for God. its specific type of L- operation let me 100 percent right when i was up in sitka alaska a couple of summers ago uh we had sailed up there my brother-in-law and, and you know wipe stuff we were hanging out in sitka and you you go around the harbor and the construction of the of the ships the number of different fishing fishing vessels that exist up here in sick alaska there's the purse saners the longliner boats the the equipment is 100 percent geared toward you're right a specific animal and you can't the ship is built for it uh purse saners longliners um different and of course all the crabbing and the bottom fishing guys completely different boat that's American fisheries. This is not just in. I mean, even even the Chinese vessel. I mean, this is okay. like this is the way that uh, a lot of uh, fish are caught is is kind of very targeted. Um, without getting into that so much, uh, he introduces this other thing, which is like this Southeast Asian philosophy, where basically you net fish. So you you go out, and it's the boats are more primitive. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're not super primitive but they're not specific built and they've got a net and they catch whatever they catch so onto the boat comes this net full of fish now they don't have the they don't in america we have this philosophy of bycatch like Mm -hmm. the non-targeted fish are bycatch so whatever you caught there it's not a shrimp it's just not a shrimp and a lot of it you you throw it over you throw it over and a lot of it's just dead because of the pressure and the it just doesn't work and unfortunately it's just these are takes that are non-targeted and it's uh, it's a problem. It, it it you not only can you kill endangered species and things like that, but uh, think about that. We're waste. It's, it's waste. It's, it's waste. It's, it's substantial too. It's so significant percentage of the catch in some fisheries by catch. And and it, it can be kind of a a roll of the dice how that works. You know, you're you're if you happen to run into a, a school of a non-targeted species, you could just wipe it out, mm. uh, and it just goes to waste. And yeah. so. But what was interesting is, uh, and what this cookbook is about, and this kind of f- different philosophy of food is that, don't think of wild caught fish that way. Every fish you catch, whether it's a little three Tin inch fish. guy or a big, mm-hmm. you know, thing, each one has its own way of 
of utilization. So this is Robert's second seafoodie podcast coming out. Is it coming out this week? No, no, no. It's going to be out in a few weeks, ladies and gentlemen. Weeks, okay. Our calendar is full. Okay. The, and so, and he's got on. Look for uh, it in August. Okay. And it's, I really like this. And, and Robert worked for the, you know, Environmental Defense Fund, worked on national fisheries policy. So he's got that part. He's got his, you know, but this, this culinary part and this seafood part with uh, chefs and how seafood is utilized. Uh, I think it's a really interesting take, and uh, I'm very proud that that's on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So, All right, Peter, moving on. Yeah. Moving on. All right, so let's talk about... We're not going to do every sector. we got a no. lot of sectors, but let's. I'm going to give you a choice of sectors. You can right. pick one. See what comes to mind. Choose either property, advocacy, engineering, hmm. or... Man. Tourism, yeah, not tourism, because that's we've all kinda, COVID. We, well, waterways. Talked, Let's talk. We could talk about waterways. We've talked about COVID a lot and tourism. You know, I think uh, when I think of what's going on in the port and waterways industry right now, I'm wondering about uh, the oil and gas and LNG export uh, industry on the American shoreline. In Costa News today, today I think this story will be in Costa News today about the decision at Jordan Cove in the state of Oregon. Uh, there was a very controversial decision to put a an LNG export terminal in uh, Coos Bay, I think is where it is in Jordan Cove on the Oregon coast. Uh, the energy that is being piped into that bay system it's on the southern oregon coast is coming from canada and wyoming it's primarily canadian though and they need to get this liquefied natural gas to china so they want to have a west coast port uh huge fight uh environmentalist state of oregon versus FERC, the federal energy energy regulatory commission uh, the state of Oregon was relying on its Coastal Management Program consistency review power and uh, would not provide a consistent re- a CMP consistency statement for the federal license for this terminal. Well, let's just say the current administration bulldozed past the state's concerns and the project uh, looks to be fully permitted now. So you see an LNG terminal being developed on the Oregon coast, not a typical energy coast, not here in Tyler where we are in Texas, where LNG export and oil and gas development terminals along the Texas coast, refinery complexes, the whole thing is, we're all used to that. This is not something they're used to on the West Coast. So, So that's happened. And then the other part is the investments in port infrastructure on the Gulf Coast of America to get this Balkan shale and and the shales uh, deposits in Texas out into the international market that, you know, oil and gas uh, export uh, rankings these days, guess who's number one or was? Uh, That was the United States. We were the number one oil and gas exporter in the world going into the COVID crisis. So there was a lot of major billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure for LNG export terminals for proposed in Port of Brownsville, several in the in the Corpus Christi area and in Houston, all requiring bigger channels, deeper water. I'll, here's my so my thing when I think about what's going on in waterways in America is it's hard to separate it from COVID and it's hard to separate it from climate change. 
are these investments going to go forward? I think you're right, man. I think that that's a really, uh, I mean, I, we hate to, we hate to bring a, uh, down forecast but i mean truly i i I think that if i was uh if this was a draft and i had to draft sea bottom mining versus uh shale exports and it was 10 you know i'm I'm shooting for i'm trying to get like a 10-year kind of patrick mahomes style (laughs) talent i'm i'm going sea bottom yeah i'm I'm going going sea bottom at this point i'm not signing up the oil and gas export, the shale produced production particularly. And, you know, this is why I think, Tyler, why I like Coastal News Today and why there's an energy tab next to environmental advocacy, next to waterways, you know, next to engineering, is this may not be the area that you practice in or are familiar with because it's not what you think about when you think about what you do personally or professionally on the American shoreline. But not knowing about the power of these uh, issues and how they're going to affect and change what you care about is really why I like the mixed bag that we do and why having some understanding, like why the hell is shale-produced gas likely would be the bad bet, why you wouldn't put Mahomes money on that. And the reason is because how much does it cost to produce in a frack a fracking in the shale system in either the Balkans in North Dakota or in West Texas or in or in Central Texas, it's about fifty plus uh, dollars a barrel production cost. Saudi Arabia produces oil at about eight to ten dollars a barrel. Russia also produces natural gas at incredibly low rates. So th- these particular forms of energy production are environmentally detrimental. Uh, people can argue that either way, but they certainly are economically expensive, which means I ain't putting Patrick home money down. If I was, if I had a choice of where to invest in, in on an emerging industry along the American shoreline or internationally, it would not be oil and gas and LNG. I just, and, and I'd be deep sea minerals with you. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that increasingly uh, these uh, coastal installations that are required for uh, our what what we consider what we tag as waterways, which by the way includes the ports and shipping and waterways. So it's not all it's not all energy. Um, it's it's uh, it's the uh, it's the broader context of how we're using these kind of industrial ports and and the systems where we move stuff um and i think there's i think that these sectors are going to change dramatically there's no question that we will continue to be using uh shipping that that the uh the movement of goods oil energy stuff over the seas yeah from nation to nation, from place to place, are you kidding? Is going to expand. 90% it's not going to contract. Of, yeah, but the way in which it's done, yeah, the way in which it's done, I think will change. And um, you know, ten years is a is a short period of time, really, when you think about it. But <clears throat> my thinking, to get back to your kind of like the the grand theory of coastal news today and ASPN and putting these categories next to each other, is that. It's all shaken up and we're all in this swirl. We're all connected. And yeah. with 
climate change and really the politics of the of uh, how we treat the environment changing. That's what I think is really going to start moving a lot faster. What was once looked at, you know, I'm going to use a historic example, but like you take the dams, uh, you take, you know, the Hoover Dam or the, the Grand Coulee Dam or whatever. My grandfather saw that as a like landing on the moon. This was a an they achievement were. of mankind. Grand Coulee was one of the and Hoover. No que- no question. I'm not I'm not discounting that. My yep. father saw that as boy, my dad really thinks this is important. He went and saw it as a young man. Like I my grandfather too. drove my dad and the whole family around America and stopped at dams. To look we, at them. We did the Hoover Dam. The dams were important. <laughs> they were. These were, uh, you're right. It's a good comparison. The moonshot, this was American prowess, both engineering, technical, financial, the capacity to control nature. I mean, this was the pinnacle. Right. Yeah. And then I look at it and I see a highly complex, and we, because the science that has been done and the jury is out on the impacts now of course i have to count the benefits well i can't i can't discount the benefits but i know but and then i think about the the next generation the zoomers who are coming along yeah they're gonna look at it as i I just they're gonna gonna say like can't we do a better way like like this is now like great grandpa thought this was the bee's knees it was but we might not and this is the nat- this is the evolution of mankind yeah it's good stuff and i think you're right i mean the the it, relationship with coastal installations like that yeah and i would go i i would even extend this further ladies and gentlemen look at like the cruise industry and yeah and coastal development and all this stuff i think that it's all going to change very dramatically in so the next we're having years. here exactly the conversation what coastal news today is about which is the fact that we're we're moving instantaneously from hydroelectric dams the bonneville power administration the columbia river i mean we could go into detail about all that energy infrastructure which has direct and immediate impact on Astoria, Oregon, and the salmon fishery all through the Pacific Northwest up to Alaska. I mean, it's the integration and the fact that you cannot simply say, I'm interested in fisheries. And the cruise industry, I mean, I mean, did you think, here we are, the, these cruise ships, by the way, are parked at sea all over the world. They're not running. And many of them are being rented out, did you know this, for gasoline storage and oil storage. People are buying, right, oil at cheap prices and storing it in cruise ships floating out in the ocean. They're being, yeah, because they can't, nobody's selling tickets. But here's my question. Is the cruise industry coming back in the same way that it was prior to the COVID deal? What are your, what's, this is your, gonna, let's, what's your prediction? Let's make this be our final segment of this show, because okay. I think, I think right. where, where are we at here? Let's check the time, Peter. <laughs> We're at 102. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, we're going to this this show is about kind of this kind of discussion. But, yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, I don't think the cruise industry, I don't think the tourism industry is going to come back the way it used to be. I mean, the world has changed and um, they've already started. I saw that they've already sold some cruise ships for scrap. Yeah. Uh, the industry's I've definitely going to contra- uh, con- cons- contract. Uh, the notion of doing that industry the way it has been done 
Right. Uh, which is to say that a lot of costs are externalized. Uh, labor costs, which are, they, you know, because we're talking the law of the sea and and you can call your home port a different country and get, yeah. you know, you're just, it, there's a lot worker, of, worker. there's a lot of funny business going on in the cruise industry that I think is, uh, I, I don't know if it'll come back exactly the same way, but uh, I think that there will always be an, a demand for voyaging out onto the sea and going out okay. on a, like an excursion. And, and if you listen to our Mary Crowley show, uh, Jenna on Friday had this great show and actually uh, surf sale seafood uh, also. Yeah, on, let's on plug a couple because, well, first of all, you did a great podcast about you were on one of the last cruises operating before the COVID shutdown in March of this year. And you can go back and find Tyler's a show that we did about that experience of being on board a ship when COVID was breaking out on ships around the world. Um, but yeah, Mary Crowley's show about, you know, what an interest. Jenna Valente continues to do shows I absolutely love. Uh, hers is called Sea Change Podcast. And Mary Crowley is this, you know, maritime, what can you say? One, one of the most interesting lives of anybody who does it ocean advocacy works on, right now on ocean plastics but her experience growing up and captaining ships and sailing all over the world i mean what how a, many people so it. she was in the bay area yeah when she was a kid i think this would have been in like the she, 70s or 80s yeah she she, she wanted to get some experience sailing so she and her buddy were like we don't want to go from port to port and sail coastal sail go into a town we don't want that they just went out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean for like two months and just sailed <laughs> because they wanted to just sail a bunch. I mean, she and she, be out there in the ocean. Think about that. Yeah. Think about just hanging out in a sailboat. Well, in the yeah. the Grier, which is now the great you know the Pacific garbage patch, but in that area, that's there's a there's a the there's gyre, great yes. there's great winds in there, and so she targeted that zone as a cool place to kind of go out and just be on the water, be in the sea. And she remembers even then she would find yeah. every once in a while, you'd find a Japanese uh, fishing float, which right. are glass and really yeah. cool. Yeah. And, you know, she just watched this influx of stuff start to show up. Uh, and it, it, you know, she's kind of dedicated her life to yeah. changing that. That show came out just a few days ago, right? Yes, that was on Friday of last on week. Friday. And Jenna is also doing, uh, what is it, Sea, Sail, and Seafood? No, Surf, Sail, and Seafood. Correct. Which is her special three-part series uh, with these guys sailing, uh, who are sailing from, you know, like, I guess, Boston area up to Maine, along the Maine coast, and kind of doing a travel log with her. It's a pretty cool show. three-parter. We're mm -hmm. two parts in. Yeah. So go back and catch part one and part two out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th this is the an adventure story. It's our first little travel log on ASPN. Yeah, um, and I like it. it's uh, it's the story of three guys uh, who are sailing from Boston, Massachusetts, up uh, the Maine shoreline, all the way up to the top of Maine, I guess. And I they're think, I think so, yeah. And they're. Uh, we're following along, and when so what they did is they, you know, when they left, I don't know if y'all remember a couple of weeks ago there were some gnarly storms that rolled through. So it was a big, yeah. they were out at sea in some pretty crazy uh, 
eight uh, foot seas. Seas. Yeah, I should note that these are filmmakers, so they are going to be making a movie about this whole trip. Yeah. Um, of course, that's not going to be ready for some time, but we we got the scoop here on ASPN, so we're bringing this yeah. kind of like as it's happening pod. They just stopped off in a little coastal town in uh, Maine. Jenna Valente met up with them there. I think they went to Kenny Bunk, and then they went... Kenny Bunkport. Yep. Yeah, they went to Kenny Bunkport, and then... Yeah, anyway, yeah, Jenna met up, who hosts the Sea Change podcast. Right, uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. they just did their uh, second episode, so be sure to check it out. Uh, and the third leg, they're going to be going out and hitting some secret uh, surfing spots, so... Right. Uh, we're, the final leg, I think we're going to, the final uh, show, we'll be learning all about where they went and kind of getting the, the the finishing wrap up, but uh, I think beginning, goes, a middle, and an end, you know, that's think, the way to well, tell a story. I think it goes more than three shows, I really do. I mean, listening to the second show uh, about what they're up to, uh, because they're focusing on sustainability, they're focusing on seafood, and they're focusing on... Uh, and actually, the chefs and the and the meeting with great chefs and all of this stuff, but they're looking at sustainability and our and and questioning the the relationship we have with the water, and how we use the resources of the water, and it really is kind of a a, a great topic and a pretty interesting way to explore it because, you know, uh, I would just say listen to part one and part two. That's what the discussion is really about and what these guys are trying to focus on. So I, I'm I'm, I'm Thanks, Jenna, for another good uh, idea. Yeah, well, Pete, let's. We've gone long enough with these people. Right. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. I, I'll just conclude uh, to to wrap up your question on the cruise industry. You know, I do hope that we keep part of it. There's an element of getting out onto the ocean and bringing people out and experiencing the size the scale the environment the beauty yeah. all of it looking at land from the other way that we should keep and uh i yeah. the the operation that i was on the joko cruise i can tell you definitively goes out of their way to to try to do to create something really special with that space and yeah. um but that is not that is that is a an, an exception that is not the rule We've all heard the scene, the examples, heard the, we've run the news of how these cruise operations can really screw up the environment, can screw up small communities. So that needs to stop. Yeah. The, again, it's a matter of scale. But I want to say just a very quick mention out to all of the great hosts on the American Troyline Podcast Network. This topic alone, Erica Sears out in Oregon, who does big tourism podcasts on ASPN, is about the uh, the the imbalance or the the impact of of mac mass tourism on coastal resources that's kind of the fundamental element of her show it's a great show it's a great way to follow it and it's a west coast perspective she's fantastic and then brian urisitz is uh, over in in new, new hampshire is also talking about it differently but he's talking about sort of these sports active guys who look at you know surfers spear fishermen fishermen of all types i mean that and He's got an interesting perspective on our relationship with the shoreline. So I love Brian. And then you got Leslie Ewing and Sam Fran, who talks about the literature and the entire written word. So I think, I thought when you're saying, you know, I hope that we continue to have the opportunities to engage with the, you know, the coastal environment and the ocean, man, I am certain that is going to continue. And when I look at the podcast house that we have in the shows, about the transition because this is what we're talking about 
are we still going to have cruise ships with 5,000 people pull up to a Caribbean island town of 300 and disgorge, you know, a mall full of people so they can get trinkets? I mean, is that going to be the damn thing or are we doing something different? Yeah, agreed. So I mean, agreed. I think we got that. That's why. I no, love I mean the ASPN. whole thing. The whole thing is the whole thing is. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to justify the 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 existence of some of these cruise ships and the and the expectation. I mean, the the amount of food that they're they're, they're throwing at people on board. The just the excessive stuff. Um, it's hard to believe that that's sustainable. In yeah. any world, but um, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, we'll I'm not. A, I have not. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't want to be. I think there are tremendously great things happening with with that industry and all and all kinds of things happening on the American shoreline. So, I just want to say, to the listeners out there, um, you know, go on Coast News today and subscribe and send it to your friends. It's really a great news service. We don't charge for it, as you know. Uh, readership numbers do matter so subscribe and the american shoreline podcast network i have to say has just been a steady significant upward climb of listeners around the world and i am so uh happy about the network and uh, and tyler runs this damn network and, and edits all of these shows and uh it's really well done and uh but it's the it's the conversation and the number of perspectives that we bring together on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that makes it so cool. And you got to subscribe. We're on Spotify. We're on Google. You're listening to this. You know. But rate, review it. Send it to your friends. Share it. it. Share it. There you go. Please do. Please share it. It really helps us. And I'll tell you another thing yeah. that would help us out. Uh, we have been busy making shows, and we have not been busy pestering yeah. y'all for... Uh, financial sponsorships which we need we, we do. are in the process of trying to grow and improve so if you your company your organization your agency your city whatever it is wants to mm-hmm. contribute to the coastal discussion the discussion that unites us all please uh, reach out to us Peter at coastalnewstoday.com Tyler at coastalnewstoday.com yeah. Yeah. we would love to support your entity by giving you access to our 2,000 plus listeners per week that tune in to ASPN. These are core people on the shoreline. These are people that work in the halls of Congress. These are people that work at NOAA and in federal agency and at the NEARS and at waterfronts around the country. Fishermen. These are professionals. People who take this stuff seriously. Uh, And we have we would be pleased to uh, avail your brand, your yeah. company, to them. Well, be you know, be affiliated as you know. Look, Coastal News Today, ASPN. The tagline is "Insight and Intelligence for Thriving Shorelines." It is a conversation we hope with the variety of hosts that we have, the information we bring together, the integration of podcast analysis from a lot of perspectives, and a new service that covers the world, aggregates news from around the world. Uh, there, there is a, it's a, it, we're trying to have and elevate the conversation and you can be part of that and you can help us do that. So get in touch with Tyler and I become a sponsor of ASPN and coastal news today. We'd love to work with you and, uh, you know, let us know what you think, rate and review it too. 
and share it. So Tyler, kicking off the week with kind of a, a, a you know, covering the bases, and I, I, it was fun to do it. Indeed, Peter. Indeed, it was great week on ASPN, ladies and gentlemen. Please stay tuned for a packed week of shows. We've got uh, a Delta Dispatches from Louisiana this week. We've got, uh, let's see, we've got a special uh, Capital Beach podcast with Nifwif from Washington D.C. From Washington D.C. A D. big C. dollar show with Derek Brockbeck talking about the tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Available. Keep going. And we've got uh, Coastal Conundrum, Bill O'Byrne. Uh, this is with Jeff Bill. and Roger. Yeah, I'm glad Bill O'Byrne's second show. This is uh, one of the new hosts, The Coastal Conundrum, which is a coastal management show. Bill was a specialist at, at NOAA and coastal management for 30 years. His guests are some super uh, also uh, coastal management professionals. Look, if you want to know how the rules are written and why sh- shit gets approved and not approved and why things happen the way they do, you know, listen to Bill O'Byrne's show. So, a lot of cool stuff this week, Tyler. Thanks a lot, y'all. Have a good week, and we'll catch you next week on the American Shoreline Podcast. The beaches are sad to